Lots of great things come from France. Wine, cheese, opera. And speaking of cheese, there's this quiz. It was circulating around social media. Is it an opera or a cheese? It was surprisingly difficult and fun. Definitely check it out. It was a good one. But following the theme of opera and food, we have a delicious pairing of topics for you today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, French Grand Opera and French Grand Cuisine. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. From Carmen to La Traviata, Samson et Dalila to Peleos et Melisande, this past season at the Metropolitan Opera showcased fantastic operas written in French, or set in France, or just based on French sources. I'm Naomi Baratera, and on today's episode, food historian and chef Carl Raymond will explore the connection between food and opera against the backdrop of the 18th century Comédie Française, the glittering world of the 1890s Belle Époque, and the rise of the great Parisian restaurant and café culture. I'm so pleased to be here, and so pleased that you are all here. And I would certainly like to thank Stuart and everyone um, here at the Opera Guild. It is wonderful to be here. I can't believe this is the seventh divas and dinner talk that we've done. And how many of you have been here before? Few of you. Everyone else, this is your first time. You're just new friends that I haven't met. Actually, I did meet some of you um, before the talk here. So. When Stuart and I started talking about a year ago about Divas and Dinner and what do we do next, um, we started to look at the season and there was something that really stood out this year, France. There are actually a number of French operas. Carmen was back, you know, Samson had a brand new production. Dialogues of the Carmelites in that gorgeous production was back. Then there were some operas that had French settings. Of course, Bohème was back and Traviata, so we had Paris in the 30s and 40s. There was La Fille du Régiment, written, of course, by an Italian, Donizetti, but it was written while he was living in Paris, and it was written for a French audience. But lastly, there was an opera that really revolutionized the way French opera was conceived and truly broke new ground, and that was Debussy's great Peleas and Melisande. So it seemed really appropriate to turn our divas and dinner lens to the world of how French grand opera and French grand cuisine both developed, given their beginnings back in the 17th century. Now this talk covers a lot, and we begin actually in the 1600s, and I will leave you in the world of the Belle Epoque in the years just preceding the outbreak uh, of World War I. I'm going to make four major stops at points where very interestingly, both food and opera intersect and their development in both genres moves forward. 
We're going to visit the opulent court of Versailles under Louis XIV and Louis XV. We'll make another stop with an operatic character who made her appearance this season, the great French actress Adrienne Lecouvreur, the real one, and the world of the Comédie Française. We're going to move on to the beginnings of grand opera and Rossini's influence as he settled for a time in Paris during the 1820s. We dip into the glittering world of the courtesans and the development of the great French restaurants in a visit with the real life La Traviata. And we'll end in the world of the Impressionists with the revolution championed most notably by Claude Debussy. So let's begin. Now, the first thing I have to say is that French food and French opera, and the French would probably be loath to really admit this, actually owe a tremendous debt to Italy. And frankly, both Italy and France owe a tremendous debt to Asia and the great civilization of Constantinople and Byzantium. The roots of so much Western culture simply moved from East to West. Now, this talk is really about the struggle and triumph that France has had over roughly 300 years to take the great traditions of the Italian Renaissance and forge something nationalistic and new. You know, there's the old story that it was Catherine de' Medici who civilized France when she arrived to marry Henry II in France in 1533. The legend always says that she brought the first fork to France and kind of civilized everybody. Um, you were supposed to imagine that society at this point was a bunch of barbarians eating with their hands. Well, I think the great court of the Burgundian kings would really have disagreed with that. So it's a little bit of a myth. Um, Catherine did bring a number of things from Italy. One, the macaron that you had this evening. They started off back in the Venetian Republic, and they were made by the great Italian Renaissance pastry chefs. And she did, in fact, bring them. She brought her pastry chefs with her when she was marrying Henry. Smart woman. Um, she brought her ices. And she brought a love of a great court festival, this is going to be important, which combined music and food. And she did bring a love of dance. Now, if we wander back to the late 16th century, we'd find one of the greatest influences in the culinary world was again not French, but Italian. Bartolomeo Scappi. Now, this is a name that's forgotten, by and large, except among culinary academics. He derived his fame from working in the kitchens of the Vatican, and he was a private chef to Pius IV and Pius V. Now, Scappi was working hard at rethinking a palace kitchen and documented each tool that he used, along with his ideas for the perfect layout of an efficient kitchen, which, by the way, is the layout of the perfect restaurant kitchen today. He had the relatively new miracle of publishing on his side, and he wrote and published his famous work, his opera, which does not mean opera, that we you know means work in Italian, in 1570, and this became the most influential culinary work to come out of the Renaissance. But France was slow. 
to develop a written culinary treatise. Germany was ahead of them. England actually was ahead of them. And France's first culinary treatise was not to come for another 75 years, nearly 75 years after Scopi. Now, the 17th century brought enormous change in the ways of thinking about the world. The 17th, really through the end of the 18th century, was, of course, the Age of Enlightenment. Some say that Descartes' famous, I think, therefore I am, is what began it all. But all of Western Europe really turned their attention to rules and orderly ways of thinking and reasoning as people struggled to impose an order on all aspects of their lives. Descartes and Pascal, they dealt with systematic ways of critical thinking. Isaac Newton and Galileo worked out principles and methods of science. And following greats like Palladio in the previous century, one of my favorites, Christopher Wren, applied his rules to create some of the era's most beautiful buildings. And of course, in music, it was the age of Bach and Handel. But it took an unknown Burgundian chef toiling away in the kitchens of the Marquis d'Uxelles to think about applying some rules to food. Now, some recipes had existed before, of course. They're not really what I would call recipes as we know them today. They were more like a list of, of steps with ingredients and amounts really were, were pretty vague. But François-Pierre de la Varenne changed the world of food, and without him, we would not have had the grand cuisine that we have today. La Varenne looked at the challenges of the busy palace kitchen and thought there just had to be a better way. If you were a meat cook, you focused only on meat dishes. You made your stock and you prepared your dishes. If you were a fish cook, you did the same thing, completely independent of each other. Well, Lavarin realized that there could be some commonalities of basic material, some basic common stocks, some common thickeners, all available to anyone at any time. He worked out a way to create building blocks in the kitchen to create a quiver, as I like to call it, of basic preparations from which a busy palace kitchen or chateau could easily build all of their dishes. He began by creating a supply of basic stocks that would be used interchangeably with flavorings added depending on the final dish. And here we have a chance to get away from those tart, vinegary sauces left over from the medieval days and create something smoother and more velvety, sauces bound together with egg yolks or even ground nuts. And he combined pork fat and flour as a sauce base. Yes, my friends, the great classic of all French cooking, the roux, had its start in the kitchens of La Varenne. He wrote his recipes down and published in 1651 Le Cuisinier Francais right here. You could still find some traces of the old cuisine. Breadcrumbs were used to thicken sauces. That tart verjus does show up a little bit, but he moved the needle in a new direction. The classic French love of grinding meat very finely with herbs to use as stuffing or even under the skin during roasting was a product of Lavarenne's kitchen. At a meal cooked by Lavarenne, you may well find a luscious plum capon 
with a surprise stuffing of ground oysters sautéed with mushrooms and cloves, tucked under the skin and served with moist slices of breast, perhaps with a side of capers to add a bit of astringency to the unctuous and delicately flavored fat. <laughs> the old medieval, oh, just wait till we get to the Belle Epoque. The old medieval taste that lingered even through the Renaissance of meats rubbed with thick coatings of cinnamon and saffron and too much black pepper had gone. He used parsley, marjoram, chervil. Think of the bouquet garni in classic French cooking. Nicolas de Bonfons was another chef who published. So you see, if you wanted to be a famous chef, you had to publish a book. The actual roots of the Food Network started right here. <laughs> um, but Nicolas de Bonfons had some new ideas too. And one of the trademarks of cooking up to this point was this great amalgamation of flavors, too many spices, all competing against each other. And Bonfons crusaded for a simpler flavor with a main ingredients flavor and texture to come through. Let a cabbage soup be entirely cabbage. And may what I say about soup be a law applied to everything that is eaten. That is such a modern idea. Well, Nicholas's day job, in addition to writing about food, he was the valet, or a valet, to Louis XIV in his court. Now, this was very useful for our story. Louis was born in 1638, and he took over in, as king at 16, 1643. Now, if you do the math, you'll realize he was four years old. So he didn't really rule until 1661 when he was 23. Well, who was ruling was the imposing Cardinal Mazarin, who was the chief minister and who was Italian and was Florentine. Now Mazarin loved his opera, and he loved what was evolving as opera in Italy, and he set about bringing this beloved, relatively new form to France and to Paris. Mazarin invited a number of Italian composers and musicians, including the great Francesco Cavalli, to Paris, and in fact asked him to stage his version of Xerxes in 1660. Well, the French nobility and the aristocrats were not impressed. They didn't like the Italian vocal line. It was imprecise. It was too long. They didn't like the florid treatments. They couldn't follow the plot, and worst of all, they couldn't understand the words. <laughs> the French have always loved their language, and in fact, it was during the reign of Louis' father, Louis XIII, that the great Académie Française was established in 1630, uh, 1635, just to make sure people use the language correctly and pronounce things properly. Now, from, aside from not understanding the words, most of all, the French wanted dance. And this new opera, this new Cavalli opera, had no dance. So for Xerxes, a composer had to be found to create an extended ballet section, which in the end is all the audience really watched and the opera part was lost on everyone. <laughs> and after this, no Italian opera was staged in France until 1752, nearly a hundred years later. Now, attempts were made by French composers to really make a French opera in their style. 
And one of the most popular, and some consider it the first, La Triomphe d'Amour des Bergers et Bergères, The Triumph of Love of Shepherds and Shepherdesses. <laughs> Sounds like a good evening to me. <laughs> Pierre Perrin and Robert Campin, this poet-composer duo, they worked together to create some pieces for Louis' court, but it was really Perrin who was responsible for lobbying the court to create a royal academy of music, just the way there was for dance and just the way there was uh, for language, and of course get funding from the court. And this, of course, became the Paris Opera. Now, what was going on as the chief court entertainment were the great ballet du cour, these mythological characters, not much plot, pretty elaborate costumes, an intricate and complicated stage machinery that came from, guess where? Italy. Long stretches of music with significant dance blended in, and this could last for a while. Sometimes six to eight hours was not <laughs> uncommon. And all of this grew from those court entertainments of Catherine de' Medici. But it took that young man who wrote that ballet for Cavalli Xerxes to really establish the tradition of real French opera. He, of course, was Italian. A member of Louis' nobles was actually returning to France, and he discovered this young boy of 14 playing the violin as a street musician. Well, he scooped him up, and he brought him to Paris to become the chamber boy and the Italian conversationalist to Louis' niece. You did this sort of thing then. He was a precocious musician and even had a talent for composition. His name was Giovanni Battista Lully, which of course became changed to the name that we know as Jean-Baptiste Lully. He became acquainted with Louis himself, and as young adolescents, they danced together in the court ballets, often with music composed by Lully himself. Louis appointed his young friend court musician to compose for royal entertainments. And on one August night in 1661, all this was to evolve in a dramatic new direction. Mazarin had died, and Louis was ruling on his own. His chief finance minister, Nicolas Fouquet, had just completed building his extraordinary chateau and gardens near Paris, Vaux-le-Vicomte. Anybody been? It's extraordinary. Vaux-le-Vicomte. Fouquet had spared no expense. He employed the greatest architect, Le Vaux, the greatest landscape designer, Le Notre, and Le Brun, the greatest painter of the time, to create his chateau and gardens. Fouquet debuted his great palace with an entertainment lasting several days, hundreds of guests that included music, dance, and food, prepared by Fouquet's major domo and master chef, Francois Vatel. The music, of course, was composed by Lully. Louis, of course, was invited to this grand feast. And as the story goes, when the king commented to Fouquet on the gold plate and the beautiful table service in front of him, he said, this is such beautiful gold plate. We have nothing like this at Versailles. <laughs> Fouquet replied, oh, it's not plate. That's pure gold. <laughs> Louis realized that all this was possible with embezzled funds. So three weeks later, Fouquet was imprisoned 
And Louis took Lebrun Laveau and Le Notre off to spruce up his father's little hunting lodge in the little town of Versailles. Now, the story of Vatel, the chef here, became legendary. He didn't go to Versailles. He went to work at Chantilly for the Prince of Condé. And in fact, the famed creme chantilly, that great French whipped cream, well, there's actually no evidence that Vatel ever created it, but it was probably likely named in his honor. But Vatel was serious about his work, and he prepared, his preparing food was to him the greatest honor. And at one banquet to which Louis XIV was invited, Vatel was having difficulty getting his fish orders in time to prepare the banquet for the king. And rather than suffer the humiliation of not enough food for the monarch, Vatel retired to his chambers, threw himself on his sword in an attempt to die in honor. <laughs> As he lay dying, the fish arrived. <laughs> Louis' palace at the time was the dark and dingy Louvre. He wanted to renovate and dramatically expand the property of Versailles and invite all of Europe to see. He decided to completely build a new palace, move the court from Paris to Versailles, and create a solar social nucleus where he would indeed rule as Sun King. Lully was to become the chief of the Académie de la Musique. He reworked that music from Volvicante. He added a vocal line with text from a new partnership with the great Molière, and we had the birth of a new form, the Comédie Ballet. Louis continued to work on the form of entertainment with a new collaborator who supplied words. His name was Philippe Cuinot, and we evolved into the Tragédie en Musique. Well, Louis invented a form of the overture. He created the recitative with some words from poetic text, the French loved their words, now they had them. He wrote extended pieces resembling actual arias, and of course, each piece was infused with the rhythms of dance. Of all of Lully's works, the king's favorite was the opera Atis, based on uh, a story from Ovid, and it became known as the King's Opera and was written in 1676. Now, Louis wanted to create an even bigger show. He created the world's greatest stage set by creating the Chateau de Versailles, and he turned dining into a spectator sport. Louis loved nothing more than a court festival, the chance to show off his growing palace, to show off with lavish, lengthy entertainments, and to show off with food. One of the most legendary of his extravagant festivals, truly a moment when food and music and dance and drama all came together, in May of 1664, Louis created the multi-day festival called the Pleasures of the Enchanted Isle. Now, he asked guests to buy into the fantasy that Versailles was, for a period of three days, an enchanted island bewitched by the sorceress Alcina, which gave license to all sorts of behavior, which happens when you are bewitched on an island. 
and it contained parades and banquets and theater pieces created by Lully and Moliere. Louis himself actually dancing in some of the performances. Great stages that you see here were erected in the gardens, including a supposed recreation of Alcina's palace on the location of where today's Apollo fountain uh, now is. Dancers performed allegories of the zodiac, celebrations of the season, and characters flooded the stage carrying baskets of fruit, platters of silver heaped with food to celebrate the seasonal abundance. One of the contemporary accounts said the sumptuousness surpassed anything that can be described as much as in the abundance as in the delicacy of things that were served. And it was a beautiful sight that all the senses could behold. And again, if we can imagine that series of spring nights in the gardens of Versailles, lit by hundreds of candles, the music of Lully, and the delicacies from the kitchens, our witness was probably right. Now, Louis always loved a big finish. So, on the third day, Alcina's palace was immolated in a grand display of fireworks while a floating whale created just for the purpose spirited Alcina and her servants away. Now, grand it was, and it was a moment when comedy and opera and theater, literary references, and a grand display of food all came together. Now, Louis began the practice of dining along with nearly everything else in public. He had a prodigious appetite. Sometimes a hundred or more dishes could be prepared for his meals, which he took with his queen or invited guests. There was a lunch around 2 o'clock and a more elaborate dinner around 10 p.m. Now, food was prepared and paraded through the palace, held aloft by courtiers and stewards, and it was accompanied by archers. Well, you never know. <laughs> Onlookers bowed as the food passed. Once it reached Louis, a taster, a gentleman-in-waiting, performed the duty, which was not good if it all went wrong. And the king dug in. And in case you were wondering, yes, the food was cold. The approximate distance from the kitchens to where Louis would have been is roughly from the 72nd Street subway stop to here. <laughs> the meal would have been served in several sections, each comprising multiple dishes. A pheasant pâté en croûte would have illustrated the bourbon's love of hunting. Oysters and shellfish would have demanded a rapid and expensive system of delivery to get to the palace. Potage a beef madreline, which was a clear cold soup with gold, a pureed chestnut soup with Italian truffles, a shellfish bisque with earthy mushrooms just brought in from the forests. The main course is a roast beef garnished with carrots. And remember, vegetables here were really predominantly used as garnishes, not as courses unto themselves. A breaded foie gras, scallops with oyster sauce, or salmon, which was thought to be a royal fish and very highly prized. A third service would have included an herb salad with gold leaf, violet and borage flowers sprinkled in, langoustines with more truffles, and a morel mushroom souffle. Now, if you think this is crazy, this is the exact menu that was recreated and served at Versailles to a group of very special guests 
back in 2010. The vegetable that fascinated the royal court more than any other were peas. Guests from Europe were astonished to find the court of Versailles obsessed with the little round vegetables found in pods. As one writer quoted, there's an endemic hysteria around the eating of green peas. Even Madame de Maintenon, Louis's mistress and later wife, wrote about them. We are still on the chapter of peas. Impatience to eat them, the pleasure of having eaten them, and the anticipation of eating them again. Some women have supped and supped well at the king's table, have peas waiting for them in their rooms to eat before going to bed. I suppose whatever you need to get you through palace life, I don't know. Um, green peas were an exquisite luxury. Louis once had a tremendous quantity of them shipped from Italy. They were packed in roses to keep them fresh. Now, music and opera was performed at Versailles, usually outdoors or in the grand salons. The famous royal opera that we see today wasn't built until 1770 for the wedding of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. And the opera performed to inaugurate the theater was Le Lise Per Se. The principal venue was in Paris at the Palais Royal. The Palais Royal was originally the palace of Cardinal Richelieu, who was a secretary of state under Louis's father, and it was the childhood home of Louis and his brother living with Cardinal Mazarin. It was the center for lavish entertainment, and the theater at the Palais Royal was the home to the Académie Royale de la Musique and saw the premiere of many of Lully's works. Now, as we move into the 18th century, the Palais gains even more importance to the story of opera and food, and it became transformed into the great shopping arcades, much of which we still see today. But it was here that it became the entertainment center of Paris for all forms of entertainment, from the high to the low. And before the great boulevards and then the work of Haussmann opened Paris up, the Palais Royal became not just an aristocratic residence, but a center of power and money and trade, high and low. And of course, gossip. Now, Louis, having outlived his son and the Dauphin, died in 1715. And Louis XV, his great-grandson, became king. He, of course, was five years old. And France was ruled again by a regent, the Duke of Orleans, until Louis was 13. The theatrical world of Paris was dominated, aside from opera, by the neoclassical theater of the Comédie Française, begun in 1680 by royal decree of Louis XIV and under the direction of Molière. The theater's original home was on a street which came to be called the Rue de l'Ancienne Comédie. We are still nearly a generation away from the establishment of what we think of as the classic restaurant. That would come post-revolution. But in the late 1600s, early 1700s, Paris was awash in the next exciting beverage from the East, destined to become, of course, a staple in French culinary culture, coffee. Arriving in Paris around 1660, it brought not only the pleasures of drinking this luscious dark brew, but the culture of the East. Oriental-style coffee houses began to spring up all over Paris, selling these small cups of coffee 
and chocolate along with the lightest of foods to accompany them. One of the most famous, at least with the intellectual and artistic crowd, was the Café Procope, opened in 1689 and miraculously, but this is Paris after all, is still there in the same spot and the same building. The Procope held a unique place because it was nearly across the street from the great Comédie Française. The year 1717 saw the debut of a young and much talked about actress who had grown up in Paris and in fact became passionate about her craft by sneaking into the old theater on the Rue de l'Ancienne Comédie and watching actors in rehearsal. She left Paris and she trained out in the provinces, but she was about to make her debut by royal invitation in Paris. Adrienne Le Couvreur. She inspired audience with a new style of acting which was much more natural and stiff than that declamatory style thus far. And of course, her life inspired plays and films and Chilea's great opera. Chilea's Adriana bears really only a modest similarity to the real Adrienne. She did have a love affair with the Marquis de Saxe. She did have rivals. However, she was not killed by poison violets. More likely a severe gastric complication in a world before antibiotics. But she was a star. And for our purposes, we pose the question, what and where did Adrienne eat? Celebrities were entertained and were guests in the townhouses of the aristocracy and the nobility. But actors and actresses, no matter how famous, were typically shunned from these celebrations. They were still marginalized and thought of as lower class. She was an actress, and it was her profession that determined much. But it was her refinement and beauty and stature all allowed her to be accepted in a way that some weren't. We know she was included in post-performance suppers and that she entertained guests at her own dinners. Now, food was simplifying a bit during this era. We were coming down from the opulence established by the Sun King, and yet we hadn't gotten to the point of the over-the-top flamboyance to come back in the world of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. Several courses would indeed have been served, a soup certainly to start, perhaps a veal, but cooking in its own juices instead of a heavy sauce, roasts of turkey, chicken, or duck, surrounded by vegetables, cheese, and fruit for dessert, really not unlike um, what we know uh, today. The great French gastronome and writer, Jean Briat Savarin, he wrote, the reign of Louis XV is no less happy for gastronomy. It was during the period that there was generally established more orderliness in the meals, more cleanliness, a good thing and more elegance. To Louis XV himself, the idea of a simple meal is, of course, subjective. Now, there's a meal, a menu, actually, that exists. It survives from 1755, which included four soups, including a turnip puree as well as a hearty onion, entrees of rabbit, filet mignon, a mutton with a piquant sauce, turtle doves, partridges, quail, sweetbreads, and duckling, and often the dishes were listed and named for nobles that were trying to curry favor with the king. Now, Adrienne dies 
1730, at the height of her fame, her role as France's greatest actress may have gotten her invited to some sumptuous tables, but at her death, she refused to offer an apology to a priest for her profession, and as a result, was buried in an unmarked grave near the banks of the Seine, untraceable and forgotten. One of Adrienne's closest friends was the great writer Voltaire. He was a gastronome and he loved to live well. He entertained lavishly and it's likely that Adrienne was often a guest at his table. Voltaire considered himself a follower of this nouvelle cuisine and clearly regard for the influence of our old friends Lavarenne and Bonfons. The successor to Lully in the opera world was the great Jean-Philippe Rameau, who actually was French. He was born in Dijon. Now, Rameau began composing opera only when he was 50 years old, and he had worked as a composer throughout most of his life. His first operatic work, Hippolyte and Arissi, premiered at the Palais Royal in 1733. Audiences were shocked or delighted at what they saw. He retained that classic form established by Lully, the overture, a prologue, followed by five acts with dances and divertissement. But the quality of the orchestrations and the vocal writing was richer and far more sumptuous and harmonically interesting. Some felt there was too much music, and people divided into factions. The old opera wars start here. There were those that wanted Lully's old style, and there were those that were intrigued by the possibilities of a new generation of the tragédie en musique. After Rameau's death in 1764, the French opera world changed again, but this time with the arrival of not an Italian, but a German. Christophe Willibald Gluck, who arrived in Paris in 1774, he had a great in because back in a stint in Vienna, he had actually given piano lessons to the young Marie Antoinette. And she had repaid her teacher by offering him her patronage as he got settled in Paris. It took a German who had done a great deal of work in Italian opera to actually move French opera into a new form. He believed that words and music needed equal weight that the drama should reflect true human passions and realities, even if it was sung by a god. He got rid of the classic da capo aria and he pulled back on those declamatory recitatives. He created new overtures that were actually linked to the coming action, either in mood or by musical theme. And not surprising, the resulting neoclassical simplistic beauty that we find in Orfeo, his real first attempt at doing this, and being brought back to the Met next season, this is your commercial to go see it, um, is extraordinary and it continues on into the repertoire uh, today. As Gluck became ill, he left Paris and died in 1787. His musical heir in Paris was one of his protégés, Antonio Salieri. Hiss. Um, what followed during the years um, after this was the terror and revolution during which to put in simplistic terms, everything of the old order was swept violently and nearly permanently away. In our worlds of opera and food, the old order of Lully and Rameau were gone, only to be rediscovered relatively recently in our own time. Gluck's principles did survive, 
and composers working following the revolution reflected his legacy, including Luigi Cattabini for one, and Gaspare Spontini was another. We're going to come back to opera, but this post-revolutionary period had a profound effect on the evolution of French food. Because it was during the late 18th century and very early 19th century that the institution that we know of as the classic French restaurant was born. And it was the restaurant, which by the way didn't exist anywhere else in quite the same way. It was called during the 19th century France's greatest export. And as a result of a specific harmonic convergence of factories, the restaurant came into being. So to get this, we have to look at the word restaurant. It comes from the word restaurer, to restore. And as a surprise to many, in its earliest sense, it actually meant a beverage, a bouillon, usually a liquid that was derived from boiling meat that was thought to give health-giving restorative properties. A restaurant in sort of the pre-revolutionary world was a stall or a shop where you would go to partake of such a beverage, usually for the sick or ill or infirm. This new kind of place was often called a bouillon, and they appeared all over Paris. And you could sit no longer at a common table, but partake of these broths at individual little tables. The only other food establishments that existed were coffee houses and taverns and inns, where the only form of food that was served was really for sustenance and not really about enjoyment. But another important factor in all of this was that the selling of food was regulated by the guilds, which were in place in the revolution since medieval times. A baker, there certainly food was sold on the street, but a baker could only sell bread. A butcher could only sell meat. Sausage makers only sausage, and soup makers only soup. When the guilds were abolished post-revolution, this allowed vendors free reign to prepare and serve any combinations of food in the same stall or shop. And if you add a few stools, the bare bones of the modern restaurant arise. Now, another great factor here was that the highly skilled and trained cooks and chefs who had been preparing elaborate food in the kitchens and palaces of the chateaus were now out of work. And add to their need to make a living, this new middle class that was growing as the result of this free entrepreneurialism. Improved transportation systems helped, bringing the population to Paris from work in the provinces, and a new class of travelers that could now safely travel to Paris. The climate was perfect for a new business model, the restaurant. And a range of restaurants grew from modest stalls and shops found at Leal, uh, which catered to artists and workers now living in boarding houses that had no cooking facilities, to this new muddied class who found dining in restaurants a sense of pleasure. The thing to remember here is that food and dining, as the result of the revolution, was now out in the open, not hidden away in a chateau or a salon, but beginning to be available for anyone who had the money to pay for it. Now, I want to jump into the early 19th century here to the most important figure in French food and oddly his connection to the most important figure in French opera at the time. The most important figure in French food since La Varenne toiled away in his Burgundian kitchen was the great chef, patisseur, cookbook writer, Marie-Antoine Carême. 
And given his clients, he holds the honor of truly the world's first celebrity chef. It was he that took all that had gone on before, the original building blocks of La Varenne, restructured it and presented us with a new form of food that we now think of as evolving into haute cuisine. I think I have mentioned him with more or less depth in every food history talk I have done. But today there's an opportunity to see his world a little more intimately. Karem was born at the height of the terror in 1793, although he was himself never really sure of the date. One of likely 24 children, although that is not known, to a family that lived deep in poverty in the center of Paris. When Karem was 11, he was taken to the outskirts of Paris, to the gates, and intentionally abandoned by his father, who could no longer feed or care for him. The culinary gods were clearly watching because he was found and taken in by a cook who gave him a small job in exchange for food and a place to sleep. And an even greater stroke of the gods allowed Karem to move from the cook as an apprentice to a pâtisseur. And they were the great stars of the burgeoning restaurant scene at the time. The pastry shop where the young Karem found himself was located on the Rue Vivienne in the shadow of the Palais Royal in the heart of social Paris. Karem taught himself to read and would slip away when he could, despite the long, grueling hours in the subterranean kitchens across the street to the Bibliothèque Nationale. And it was in the pages of the great illustrated travelogues showing extraordinary images and discoveries in Egypt and Greece and China that Karem's imagination soared. What if he could create vast pyramids, classic temples, awe-inspiring hanging gardens, turreted castles himself, all in sugar? He began to think of food and pastry as architecture and sculpture. In the dining rooms of the wealthy and the growing leisure class, the dining table had become a complete stage set. It was not only an opportunity to show off the elegant cutlery and the new porcelain arriving from China, but great centerpieces of sculpted ice and spun sugar. Karem became the master of it all. Well, Karem's fame rose, and he traveled to England to become the chef for the Prince Regent, the future George IV, at his fantastic Oriental Palace, the Brighton Pavilion, and even onto Russia at the invitation of Tsar Alexander I. Now, neither England nor Russia really suited Karem, and he found he was most happy and productive back in Paris. He had grown from working solely in pastry to working as a full-service chef. The innovations he brought in cuisine included the creation of the famous mother sauces, the bechamel, the velouté, the espagnol, from which all classic sauces are derived. Karem was a proponent of changing the way a meal was served, Instead of all the multiple dishes arriving at once, he advocated for what became to known as service a la russe, which was a style that we have today, a procession of single dishes which were served one after another that allowed the chef to control the service and, most importantly, greatly increased the opportunity to arrive at the table hot. <laughs> the culture of gastronomy was permeating society, and now people became interested not only in the presentation of food, but on the possibilities of taste, how multiple flavors could combine, or possibilities of allowing the rich, unctuous, seductive flavors of meat or fish to shine. 
and he created the famous chef's toque that we wear today. But I want to take you to a very particular dinner at a very particular time at a, with a very particular guest to bring the world of opera in at the time. Carême's last great service was as a banquet chef to the wealthiest couple in France at the time, James and Betty Rothschild. The Rothschilds, of course, were members of the German financial family, and despite their wealth, they had a challenge in entering Parisian society. They were outsiders, and they were Jewish. One of the ways in was to hire the greatest chef cooking. All of Paris wanted to sit at the table to eat his food. So I want to take you back to a summer night, July 6th, 1829, to a small dinner for 10. The Rothschilds habitually held balls and dinners for hundreds at their Parisian mansion, but this was just a dinner in the country at their villa outside Paris in Boulogne-sur-Seine. The menu, planned weeks in advance, included some of Carême's best dishes, 18 in all, spread over eight courses. A fish soup began the meal with a second savory soup, named in fact for Lady Morgan, who was one of the guests. A grilled sea bass with Italian herbs and a cod with an egg lemon sauce, suspiciously like hollandaise, followed. And a course with lamb medallions and quail followed that. And a course of beef and chicken and rabbit followed that. Karem served his famous vol au vent, the puff pastry shells that were so light they flew like the wind, hence their name. White beans and braised lettuce added accompaniment, and the fruit included fresh oranges, still a delicacy, stuffed with flavored jellies and nectarines. But the showstopper was the dessert. La Sultane de la Colonne, a tower of spun sugar representing the tower of Sultan. Spun sugar was one of Karem's great specialties, and anyone who has ever worked with it knows its tricks. As Karem himself said, it needs perfect preparation. The sugar must be the right temperature and consistency to spin. Now, of all the famous and well-known guests at the table that night, the most famous composer of opera in Europe, Giacchino Rossini. There was an interesting, uh, this acquaintance between Rossini and Carême was an extraordinary illustration of how these two worlds of opera and food were combining and each of these great artists were at the top of his profession. When actually he was asked to tour uh, to America, Rossini famously said, I couldn't possibly go without Antonin Carême. <laughs> Paris had already had a taste of his bubbling infectious opera buffa and was looking forward to more. With a restored monarchy, his first original work for Paris was Il Viaggio a Reims. I love that work, to celebrate the coronation of Charles X. And what followed that was the Siege of Corinth, Moses, and Le Contorie, all in true Rossini fashion, reworkings of earlier pieces. Le Conte, of course, was performed here just a few seasons ago. And it's important because it was comic. No new comic work had been performed in Paris in over 80 years since Rameau's Plate. So the dinner at the Rothschilds took place at a very special time. It was just one month before Rossini's last, grandest, and arguably most influential opera, at least for Paris, was to debut, Guillaume Tell. 
Grand opera took over most of the mid-19th century Paris with composers such as Jacobo Meyerbeer and creating works for the stage big, long, and always with the requisite third act ballet or your opera was a failure. For reasons that scholars continue to debate, Guillaume Tell was Rossini's last opera. He simply stopped writing. He'd after all written 39 operas. He left Paris only to retire, return again in 1855 with a different wife and lived there until he died in 1868. Carême ended his career as well, yet much of his legacy was captured in his books, his great work, L'Art de Cuisine Française, in 1834, not unlike our old friend La Varenne. Karem died only four years following the Rothschilds' dinner. He was 49 years old, his lungs exhausted and weakened from the years of coal smoke in poorly ventilated underground kitchens. As opera became grand, so did food, and more importantly, dining. The post-revolutionary world was changing the city. The development of the Grand Boulevards crisscrossing the city, Montmartre, Capucine, Madeleine, and most importantly, the Boulevard des Italiennes, named for the location of the theater. The Palais Royal had become old and represented the old city. Parisians and those flocking to the city wanted something new. They wanted the new restaurants. Paris was a vibrant entrepreneurial city and the street was the place to show off your money. The period between the 1830s and the 1850s saw a huge growth of the great restaurants, mostly centered around the Boulevard des Italiennes and the Salle Pelletier, which was the home of the Opéra since 1821. It was right around the corner. It was said that the Grand Canal was to Venice what the Boulevard des Italiennes was to Paris. The Café de Paris, the Café Tortoni, the Café Anglais, the Café Riche. Carême had set the standard for the celebrity chef, but remember, he had never had a restaurant. People wanted to be seen, and the two best places to do it were the restaurant or, of course, the opéra. Adolphe Dugleray was the pupil of Carême, and he became chef at the Café Anglais. By the 1850s, it was the poshest table in Paris. Casimir Moisson was another of the growing celebrity chefs of the period. He worked with Dugleray, and although much discussion and debate on this, he too was credited for the creation of the famous dish named for Rossini, the Tornados Rossini, which was a tranche of filet with truffle and foie gras. The restaurant bustled with the new and the wealthy, as well as those who were there for their passion and pleasure. The Grand Cocotte, the Grand Horizontal, yes, the great Parisian courtesan. In the late 1840s, the most famous and sought after of all Parisian courtesans was Marie Duplessis. She came from Normandy to learn and practice her trade. She counted Franz Liszt as well as the writer Alexandre Dumas-Fils among her lovers. This is useful because the beautiful Marie became the model for Marguerite in Dumas' novel and play La Dame aux Camélias, and of course the model for Verdi's heroine of La Traviata, Violette Valérie. Marie's life as a courtesan was brilliant and short. She died of consumption in 1847 at the age of 23. But it was in the world of the cafes and restaurants and the opera where she felt perhaps the most free even in her illness. 
Marie knew the great cafes of the Boulevard des Italiens, and it was here that she was entertained by her many lovers. Of all the famous and popular restaurants cropping up on the Boulevard des Italiens, perhaps the Grand Maison Dorée was the most special, at least for Marie. The Maison Dorée opened in the 1840s at the height of all this culinary frenzy, was on the site of another cafe, and it was actually called the Restaurant de la Cité, but nobody called it that. It was the Maison Dorée, the golden house. It boasted an impressive cellar of more than 80,000 bottles of French, Spanish, and Italian wines. The restaurant itself was decorated like a grand Moorish salon, like a great stage set to show off the clientele. Mirrors were an essential part of the decor, and they filled every wall, as much to keep tabs on who was there as to reflect any light. The Maison Dorée is still there, at least the facade. The area that, uh, became the, that eventually became the banking area of Paris and no longer the center of restaurants and theaters. Champagne was Marie's drink of choice and a sad detail in her final days, which we know from the paid and mostly unpaid receipts found in her apartment were her orders for champagne as she lay dying. The Second Empire began in 1852 with Napoleon Bonaparte's nephew as the self-proclaimed emperor. Napoleon III greatly influenced the beauty and he was influenced by the space of London's parks and he endeavored to finally open up the still in some ways medieval city and transform the decrepit neighborhoods and slums into a grand stage set itself. The real theater of Paris moved decidedly onto the street. The agent for all of this was the great prefect of the Seine, Georges Eugène Osman, who in 17 years employed tens and thousands of workers, demolished the old, re rebuilt the sewers, planted over 100,000 new trees, and created the great parks and public spaces we find today. He built two new train stations and rebuilt the other two. Paris was indeed now connected to the world. He annexed the suburbs. Greater Paris now expanded to include a population of 1.6 million by 1860. He commissioned five new theaters, including the greatest opera house in the world, the Palais Garnier, to sit proudly at the head of the Avenue de l'Opéra. This was the period of the froth of Offenbach, of early Bizet and Massenet, Gounod, even Berlioz, who got his due much uh, later. Unquestionably, one of the greatest stylistic advances was the work of Jacques Offenbach. The opera comique was not interested in his work, so he leased a number of smaller theaters to get his work heard. His combination of memorable, infectious melody, sharp satire, and of course, a healthy dose of sexual innuendo was a winning combination. He died before completing likely his most popular and most mysterious work, he left unfinished the tales of Hoffman. Part of his work vanished as a result of the Franco-Prussian War. Jacques Offenbach was a German Jew. Our final section, which ends our journey, of course concludes with the glittering Belle Epoque. It's defined by the end of the Franco-Prussian War in 1871 and the beginning of World War I in 1914. It roughly corresponded to the Edwardian age in England and the Gilded Age here. 
It was a period when Europe was arguably its greatest power. French and Britain controlled the world, and France itself, after nearly hundreds of years of struggle between monarchy and empire, was now a republic. If one could characterize this period of peace, technological advance, and artistic blossoming, it was, of course, light. Literally, of course, because Paris became electrified in 1878, but light was a symbol for art, music, and the food of the period. This was, after all, the Paris of the Impressionists. In the opera world, the story focused on the realization of Hausmann's dream, the completion and opening of the great and grand Palais Garnier in 1875. And in the world of food, the opening of the Paris Ritz, whose kitchens were under the direction of the renowned Auguste Escoffier, was arguably the moment when French food truly became grand cuisine and moved into the 20th century. Champagne was the drink of the time, the bubbles, metaphors for the froth of the great French operettas and cabaret artists, to say nothing of the great and famous Folie Bergère. Absinthe, the green goddess, that mysterious, potent, distilled spirit derived from wormwood along with fennel and anise, stimulated the creative spirit of Paris's artists, composers, and writers. And situated at the head of the Avenue L'Opéra, Paris's great opera house, the Palais Garnier, named for its architect, was designed to show off what was on stage, but far more importantly, to show off the audience. We have come a long way from the private court entertainments and cramped theaters of the 18th century. The grand staircase, along with the lobbies and the balconies, and of course, the great foyer and the auditorium. Who needs Versailles? All you need to do is go to the opera. It was begun in 1861. By 1875, though, the taste for grand opera had begun to decline. And the program for opening night gives us a sense of Paris's operatic taste at the moment. The program included the overture to Rossini's William Tell, individual acts from operas by Meyerbeer, Alevi, as well as ballets by Delibes and Minkus. The period following the Franco-Prussian War led to tremendous nationalism, and now we had French composers writing French operas based on French subjects. Restaurants had become grand too, like the opera, these palaces of cuisine were stage sets to show off the clientele. It wasn't so much about what you ate, it was about who saw you do it. Fouquet's opened on the Champs-Élysées in 1899, and actually sadly just recently burned. Maxime's opened in 1893 on the Rue Royale, first as a bistro, but became one of the most popular of all Parisian Belle Epoque restaurants, appearing, of course, in Lehar's Merry Widow. Even travel was becoming grand, and restaurants such as Le Train Bleu opened at the Gare de Lyon in 1900. Doesn't it look like an opera house? Yeah. In addition to the opulence, a new kind of restaurant was emerging as well, the Brasserie. Originally a kind of beer garden, but finally became a place for moderately priced food to be served and a respectable enough place to meet a prostitute. The musical world became enchanted fascinated or confused with the most impressionistic of composers, he would have hated that label, Claude Debussy, whose only opera, Pelleas and Melisande, created a sensation 
and it moved the genre forward when it opened in 1902. There was no one quite like him. If you could imagine a musical version of Impressionist painting, you would have the work of Debussy. Debussy made the decision to break away entirely, and when he submitted some early work to the French Academy, it was called bizarre, incomprehensible, unperformable, perhaps, but it was new. His influences included a range from the work of Palestrina, even Wagner, and Javanese gamelan music, whose exoticism captivated Paris in the International Exhibition of 1889. He had long wanted to write an opera. For a long time, I've been striving to write music for the theater, but the form in which I want it to be is so unusual that after several attempts, I gave up on the idea. The idea would be two associated dreams, no time, no place, no big scenes. Music in opera is far too predominant, too much singing, and the musical settings are cumbersome. My idea is of a short libretto with mobile scenes, no discussion or arguments between the characters whom I see at the mercy of life or destiny. Well, Debussy's dream, dream Like Opera debuted at the Opera Comique in April of 1902. The reception was mixed, and even the great Camille Saint-Saëns, who was no fan, allegedly said he stayed in Paris specifically so he could say nasty things about the score. <laughs> Debussy had entirely pushed the boundaries of what opera could be into something new. It was light, but was rich, a sense of harmony. It was emotional. It was unexpected, and it would fully draw you in, not unlike a meal by the great Auguste Escoffier. The orchestral writing had become a main ingredient, perhaps showing some influence of Wagner, which washed over the singers like a rich sauce. The real game changer of food occurred with the opening of the Paris Ritz in 1898. Famous, the Mansard-designed townhouse was bought by César Ritz, and he and Auguste Escoffier had become the stars of London's Savoy Hotel, which was owned by the Gilbert and Sullivan impresario Richard Doily Cart. With César Ritz as the owner and general manager and Escoffier in the kitchen, they took what they had done in London and created a new style in Paris, it was indeed Ritzy. The artistic world of Paris came to Ritz's door. Marcel Proust wrote sections of his great remembrance of things past here. Many lovers were entertained here, and as the story goes, the corpulent Edward VII became stuck in a bathtub due to his girth when entertaining a paramour. But it was in the kitchens of Escoffier that for our purpose the real story unfolded. Escoffier had originally intended to be an artist, a sculptor, but his father asked him to have a respectable profession. Escoffier took up the work of Carême and lightened things up. In fact, he was well known for his phrase, above all, make it simple. He reorganized the order of the kitchen staff and created the modern kitchen brigade. He moved the kitchen from the subterranean caverns to the same floor as the dining room, feeling this would add to the speed in which diners were served. And if you had a dish created by Escoffier and named for you, that meant you had arrived. And here we have two of the most uh, notable examples, the Peche Melba, named for the great Australian soprano Nellie Melba, and the Fraise a la Bernhardt, named for the greatest French actress, 
Sarah Bernhardt, who was reputed to be uh, Escoffier's lover. Now, like his great creations, or his great predecessors, Carême and Lavarenne, Escoffier wrote his own Guide Culinaire in 1903. We are performers, whether chefs or singers, and at the end are at the service of either food or music. And I want to end with two people who said it far better than I can. Our old friend, who in so many ways began it all, our chef Lavarenne, who wrote in his dedication to his treatise, Le Cuisinier Francais, although my humble birth does not make it possible for me to have a heroic heart, it does nevertheless give me enough true feeling for my indebtedness and in preparing food delicately. I have set down in writing the honor to practice in your service, and I have made a little book which bears the name of your clerk of the kitchen. Talk about humble. Now, as I read that, it struck me as so similar to the words, to the great aria that our actress Adriana Lecouvreur sings in her famous opening aria, Io sono Miliancella. I am the humble servant of the brilliant creator. I am the vessel's music, the fragile instrument, the lowly handmaiden. My voice is just a whisper, which with the new day will die. And I think that that's something to which Lavarenne, Antonine Carême, and Auguste Escoffier would have agreed. That was food historian and chef Carl Raymond guiding us through the wonderful world of French cuisine and French opera. Our new season of lectures and community engagement events will be announced this coming August, so please follow the Metropolitan Opera and the Metropolitan Opera Guild on your favorite social media platforms for the most up-to-date information. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.